any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. James uh, Jordan, welcome back again to the Into the Impossible podcast. We are now live. <laughs> uh, you're joining us from Santa Monica. You've been a friend of the show and a friend uh, to me. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're here to talk about your book, The Speed of Life, but not that much because the thing I always hate is when I would be interviewed by a podcaster who didn't read the book and didn't care about the book, uh, but uh, but wanted to save his listeners the expense and time of reading the book. So they would say to me, tell us what's in your book. Tell us what the reader will learn and what your conclusion is, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to say that this book has a subtitle, an illustrated novel, which is, uh, which is quite lovely. I actually bought the Kindle book. I have the hard copies, courtesy of you. But I want to look at some of the illustrations in the book after we do the following thing, which is something that authors are told and readers are told never to do, which is to judge a book by its cover. I want to ask you, how did you come up with the cover illustration and the title of this book? This cover took a long time to develop. There's a character named Andrew who is a, a very young shaman, seminal uh, of mixed race. And in this picture, he's paddling his canoe up the Lakahi River towards what I hoped would be a supernova, um, a connection between the cosmos and the Earth. Um, I had an original uh, illustrator who did, anyway, not, not as good a uh, cover as this one, Eric Savage, my current illustrator, this is his second version of the cover, but every illustration on the cover is inspired by a scene in the and this particular scene is in section seven, and uh, Andrew has been at Jupiter and is able to see the past through a reflection from the sun of a vent on Earth that has come back through a worm, and he wants to get back to Earth to warn people who will be in danger. And so it is sort of a mind-bending story that goes uh, to the depths of outer space and to the heart of the Everglades, to the criminal justice system, to interracial relations, to uh, some very startling uh, kind of gripping, um, almost almost like a, a, a film. It's, it's very theatrical. And this is your first book, right? I mean, this is your first book of fiction yes. or nonfiction, right? This is my first novel. So Kip Thorne was, was uh, James's science advisor. He read the passages related to astrophysics on several occasions. As he revised and rewrote, he wrote he read the entire manuscript when he thought it was complete, provided him with extensive notes and insightful advice. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And also T.C. Boyle read chapters as his writing progressed, provided him with invaluable editorial and structural suggestions. He read the manuscript in its entirety, it was complete, and he is, of course, a distinguished professor of English emeritus at the University of Southern California, not the University of California where I am, but that great school to the north uh, in Los Angeles. And then uh, the late Victor Wolfenstein, who is a professor of political science and political theory. Again, these are really uh, amazing, uh, amazing contributors to this, to this book, and. I think, you know, his wide-ranging intellect really shines through here. I wonder, how did you get connected to Kip Thorne and Leonard Mallad now? 
Well, um, I knew Leonard met him at parties at Kip's house. And uh, you've been in Los Angeles for a long time. And you also knew T.C. Uh, Boyle, right? That, that's the other uh, encomium on the back. Uh, from the courtroom to the swamp primeval to the underpinnings of the universe, James Jordan takes us on a wild ride. A, a hugely ambitious and thoroughly enjoyable triumph of a first novel. All I can say is bravo. And of course, uh, he is a renowned author in his own right. How did you get to know uh, Professor Boyle? I, uh, I went to grad school and created U.S. So I want to talk about some of the, uh, as I said, some of the illustrations in this book. It's an illustrated novel, and and you've kindly put me in touch with Eric, who did some of the art for the for the uh, for this video. Um, of the artwork that's in here, some of it is cultural, I would say. Some of it is uh, astrophysical. How did you determine kind of the uh, the the balance between how technical this was going to get? It's not a physics book, and your audience is fiction re readers. It's not nonfiction science readers. How did you find the balance between the hero's journey of the story? I really see it as a as a journey, and maybe it'll continue in future books. But um, how do you strike the balance between the technical and the sublime? There was no uh, plan at the outset to uh, bat, to create a balance. Um, this book, um, like Atlas, uh, like, uh, I was Atlas Shrugged, but that's not it, uh, Cloud Atlas, it, it has a similar uh, structure to Cloud Atlas in that each section of the book has uh, chapters that come together at the very end, but don't necessarily flow temporally one to the other. And so I felt illustrations would help the reader understand that she was moving into a whole new realm as she moved from section to section. Each illustration is taken from a scene in one of the chapters in each part of the book, each of the seven parts. And um, Eric, it, I conceived of what they should look like. I went through a few illustrators, but Eric by far the best, and we really clicked. <laughs> Yeah, there's some of my favorites shown here. And a uh, reminder, you can find James on his website, which I have linked underneath his, his visage. You can also find him on Twitter at James Victor Jord, J-O-R-D, uh, not uh, the full name because Twitter won't allow it. Uh, and the the main thing, you know, I'm an astrophysicist, so I want to talk about some of the astrophysical you know, aspects of the book. Uh, I think it is quite, uh, quite fascinating that you blend them together. For me, uh, it's so daunting to think about writing uh, a fiction book. It's almost more daunting than a nonfiction book because a nonfiction book, you can rely on facts and, and your historical recollection, as I did in losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, I actually lived these events, but these nobody's lived these events. I mean, at least I hope not. Some of them are pretty graphic, as you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I just wonder, you know, kind of advice to people like me who would like to eventually write a work of fiction, have some nascent ideas, but nowhere near the level of concreteness that my nonfiction book had. How do you advise somebody like me, who's not an, you know, an English major by any means, as you probably can tell, uh, how do you advise someone like me to pursue a dream of doing, you know, writing the great American novel? The second um, great American novel, after this one, of course. After Gatsby. <laughs> um, <laughs> First, just to go back, there's an overriding theme in this book, which is the question, what is real? And I don't think you can address what is real just by looking at the surface of the planet Earth. And, and I think that that's important. How would I advise you? Well, you're a terrific writer. I have 
uh, read Losing the Nobel Prize twice, and I've listened to it once. Uh, and so I wouldn't worry about the writing. Everybody has a different style when it comes to um, uh, fiction. Some people want to outline. Some people like T.C. Boyle. Outline would be anathema. Uh, John, uh, John Irving would say, if you, can't, if you don't know what the last chapter is about, you're lost. And T.C. Boyle would say the opposite. Um, so would Flannery O'Connor. Um, you have a great, if you have a story in mind, then uh, you begin with that. And you have to write every day. You have to set aside some time. And um, like I said, in your case, I wouldn't worry about the prose. It's just um, uh, very evocative. Your writing is beautiful and evocative. So I would encourage you to write something that's science fiction. From the little science fiction I have read, um, some of it is disappointing. Some of the big winning uh, uh, books are disappointing. Um, uh, Ursula Le Guin's, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, uh, she, her science is terrible. She writes science fiction and she makes up things and they happen in outer space, but they could just as well or in other planets, but she doesn't really describe correctly what's going on. Uh, she botches Einstein's theories. Um, then you, you have, um, well, I'm, my mind is, is losing it at the moment. Uh, who wrote Mari? Andy Weir. Andy well, Weir, he's, yeah. He's, he's a terrific writer. And every the one of the uh, virtues of his book is that everything in it could possibly happen. Which I <laughs> yeah. But it's not a really a terribly interesting story. I mean, he gets he gets left there and then they go back and get him and they bring him back to Earth, whereas Ursula Le Guin writes very interesting stories with complex human and political problems uh, in them. Uh, this book that just won the uh, Hugo Award, The Three-Body Problem. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, the science in that is just, they don't conform to anything that we understand about the laws of physics. You know, people deflate themselves and all the water goes out of them and then they reinflate themselves. It's an interesting idea, a planet trying to revolve around three suns that are orbiting each other. But the science is, is you know, you kind of, if you care about the science, uh, being uh, somewhat true to life, then um, it'll lose you to that yeah. extent. Yeah. Yeah, we're hoping to have uh, Andy Weir on the podcast uh, in a few months. He's uh, he's a he is not an alum of UCSD. He went to UCSD like Kim Stanley Robinson, like David Brin, like the Benford brothers. Vast numbers of amazing science fiction writers call UCSD their alma mater, but not him. He didn't graduate. So maybe that's why the, the gaps there are that you found. But he has another book coming out called uh, uh, Project Hail Mary, and I'm scheduled to hopefully talk to him in May. Uh, I'll let you know when that comes out. Uh, reminder, we're yeah. talking to James Victor Jordan today. Please follow him on Twitter. Please go to his website. His website is really magnificent. Uh, I don't know who does the website, Jim, but it's such a fun website to play around with. I, I get lost in it when I when I do it, as I do with your writing. Uh, please follow him. Uh, you'll find some video trailers for the book, which are uh, filled with the illustrations, which are incredible works of art. Not just a, it's not just a work of literature; it's a work of art as well. Uh, and you'll find the these blurbs, these encomia from Kip Thorne, from T.C. Boyle. Uh, from from you know some of the most renowned authors in history, and 
You can also check out and leave a review of it on Amazon, Goodreads, and, and elsewhere. And you'll find that it has, you know, just almost uncountable uh, numbers, constellations of five-star reviews. So congratulations on this. I want to know, do you get, you mentioned a little bit of your, of your um, prescription for working on a book, daily habits, writing every day. Um, I wonder, you know, if, if you found the process addictive or if you want to branch out, I know you have tentative plans. I don't know if you want to talk about it for a follow-up involving perhaps some of the characters. Again, I don't like to get into too much detail because it's much easier to give away, you know, kind of the, the spoil the book for, for people. And I want them to have it, the savoring experience of it. Uh, but can you talk about future plans and whether or not you find the process addictive? When I'm in it, um, it's addictive. I have to do it all the time because I have ADD. If I'm into something 100% and if I get out of it, uh, I spend some days doing other things and then it's sort of like going to the gym or something like that. Uh, I can easily be distracted and have to get back into it. So uh, I think every successful writer that you will talk to, uh, either in terms of their being a bestseller or their uh, being having a lot of literary awards will tell you it's just something you have to do every day. Mm -hmm. um, I would imagine losing the Nobel Prize. You thought about it every day, but you probably wrote a little bit, I'm guessing. Yeah, uh, I tried to. Yeah, it was hard because we were dealing, I mean, hard in a good way. We had little kids running around and uh, there's still some little kids running around, uh, which is uh, which is always fun. But yeah, mm -hmm. carving out the time, making it a part of your profession, even though it isn't my profession, uh, necessarily, my, my job is to build uh, astronomical telescopes and take them to the world's extremes. But uh, but for me, the kind of writing and, and even the podcast has become a chance, as I think I said to you months ago, you know, we had a delay at a couple times because of COVID and my schedule. And uh, I said, you know, what I like about the podcast is that in contradistinction to my day job, where I might have to talk to somebody as I do in 16 minutes from now, uh, I have to talk to some contractor about building a, a roadway at 17,000 feet in the Atacama Desert of Chile. That's someone I have to talk to. But when I get to chat with you, it's someone I want to talk to and the uh, other people that I've gotten to, uh, to know. And you start to change your identity when you become a writer, when you produce something. And so I encourage everybody necessarily to write a book. I don't think everyone should publish a book. I, I, I think you should only write a book when it can't not be written in a sense. And I feel like the themes in this book I want to explore next because they're not, um, it's very difficult to define it. And in fact, I was worried at first, can I understand this book? Uh, not, not because of intelligence, but because it's such a broad sweeping scope of the book, ranging from, as they say, murder mystery to violent crime, to the criminal justice system, to like Native Americans, to just incredible uh, breadth, and then throw an astrophysics on top of it. But because it has this core of, of uh, you know, a crime, true crime story or whatever, uh, fictional crime story, um, I want to talk about that. Uh, as you know, I've talked a lot about uh, free will, determinism, reality, consciousness on this podcast. I want to ask you where, do you, where do you think that this comes into play in the criminal justice system? Are you a believer in determinism? Are you a believer in free will? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, I'm a believer in free will. I know Stephen Hawking said free will is an illusion. Um, if you're not a, I'm a lawyer. If you're not a, a believer in free will, then how do you ethically punish a criminal? Because the crime was, they had no choice. It was going to be uh, 
and probably there's most people believe some there's some mixture in between um you don't really have existentialists will say everybody has freedom even if you're in a prison cell or in a concentration camp or a prison of war camp you've got the you're the freedom of your thoughts and i think that is not true harsh if you don't if you have hunger if you have pain you don't have the type of freedom that we usually uh believe so they're anatomically maybe we're determined we'll be hungry if we don't eat uh consciously we can think of anything we want uh we have free will although again if you're hungry you're not going to be thinking about much more than getting that next meal uh killing the beast bringing it home for the family to to feed them it's it's a mixture i do i do address free will and determinism extensively in the book Right. And so, you know, I wonder as I'm reading it, you know, because you portray it in a balanced way, how you, you know, uh, what what you really believe. And so it's good to it's good to have that the characters, you know, and the explication of it are different, of course. But um, I've had, in fact, with your friend who you introduced me to, Leonard Mladenow, who was Stephen Hawking's, you know, perhaps most prolific collaborator. And in fact, wrote you know some of the mo the, uh, the final books that Stephen ever wrote, including uh, the Grand Design. Uh, he, he had two. Say, he wrote what's the first that? Ones too. He wrote the first ones too. Uh, a brief history of time, uh, but he he didn't get co-author credit. But he was in really? on every one. Yes, I didn't know. I didn't know that Leonard wrote the first, the brief history of time. Well, I thought I thought he wrote the second one, the briefer history of time. I'll have to ask him about that. <laughs> yeah, ask him. It, it, uh, he didn't write it. He co-wrote it, and apparently, all the way to the end, as I gave the anecdote earlier, Stephen had the final say. On yeah. Everything. And, you know, Stephen, of course, didn't necessarily believe in it. But as Roger Penrose, who's been a four-time guest on my show, has said uh, about Stephen, it didn't matter what you thought you always could find Stephen agreeing with you because he changed his mind so often. And the former, uh, uh, you you quote, and you got extensive help from the, uh, the, the previous Richard Feynman professor of physics at Caltech, namely Kip Thorne. Uh, I spoke recently to the current holder of that chair, who's, uh, who is none other than John Preskill, who's an amazing intellect. And we talked a lot about the bets that he had with Stephen. I remember when they made these bets, and then Thank you know you. Stephen would capitulate and so forth. But um, but Leonard and I had a, a very interesting and and really quite um, uh, maybe agitated. It might not be the right word, but we had a very intense conversation with Frank Wilczek, which you can find, and Deepak Chopra. So it's Deepak Chopra, me, Frank Wilczek, and Leonard Malad now in conversation, and uh, and some of they were going at it, uh, Frank and and Leonard. I found it very interesting because Leonard is a is a essentially as I deter, as I can understand it a, a proponent of you know super determinism that everything is determined in the wave function of the Big Bang and if we we just can't understand it but if we could and then on the other side Deepak is saying well there's quantum you know uh, magic that you know and so we were all kind of like just criticizing Deepak who's a good friend by the way uh, but you know don't get too woo woo on us. But this notion of, of like, you know, determinism being, deter you know, everything, uh, the one thing I will get from Leonard, and that comes through in your book as well, is that, yeah, there is, how can you blame somebody? How can you have a justice system? And it was actually Wilczek, the Nobel laureate, the quantum chromodynamics uh, explicator. He was saying that, no, because then how could you punish people if everything is determined? And it was Leonard Mladenow, your friend of mine, saying, no, it's everything's determined. I find it. Um, kind of surprising. I would have thought the other way around, 
But um, you know, in terms of determinism, nowadays we hear all sorts of things related to consciousness, and there's touched upon in the book as well. Um, how you know awareness and and blame and, and so forth. There's this whole notion now of of you know kind of super consciousness or panpsychism. What do you make of that? That that you know everything is conscious and everything has at its root layer of reality a perception that's unique to the object itself. Where do you fall in that spectrum? Personally, that's not my perspective at all. In the book, there are characters who believe that everything is is alive, stones, trees, and yes. uh, that would be Deepak's uh, um, belief also, and I know that from having read uh, War of the World Views. Mm -hmm. uh, Henry James said the author should not uh, have a point of view that comes across in the book, but the characters should, even if the uh, even if the author is the narr even if there's a first person narrator. And so I tried to do that in this book. So do I believe uh, in shamanism uh, that there's a, a non ordinary reality where shamans can travel with um, their power animals? Well, personally, I think I'm too much of an empiricist. <laughs> but so. Mm -hmm. There is evidence, there is inferential evidence that they do this because over centuries, shamans practiced uh, virtually uh, the same type of medicine uh, and uh, they were separated by continents and geographical uh, distances that were so far they could not have possibly uh, have communicated and some went into this state using drugs like in Peru and some used, did it doing chants and rattles. Uh, they got into this state. Um, the characters in my book don't use drugs to go into a state of, uh, of uh, non-ordinary reality. But how do you explain the fact that they were doing similar things and having similar beliefs and describing similar things over the centuries? So it's an inference. Um, but I guess I'm too much of an empiricist. But my but in, in the book, I, I I have characters who believe that and they and they endeavor to express it. Yeah. And I'm always wondering, you know, is this the author, as you say, because a good author won't reveal if it's his or her perspective. Uh, along those lines, you know, I felt you got into very fraught territory that could have been very risky. You're a, a presumably Caucasian uh, male who's uh, in a in a heterosexual relationship uh, that you thank your wife, you acknowledge your wife's loving you know, tenderness and help, uh, and and you're a lawyer who's lived for a long time, as I gather, in Santa Monica, California, and here you are writing you know a book that takes place of large part from the perspective of uh, of a you know mixed race Native American, maybe uh, you know, and 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 kind of consult in consultation with the criminal justice system. He encounters African. How did you you know? And there's you know, scenes written from female perspectives, obviously, How, like what gave you the, you know, the chutzpah, the, <laughs> the courage to, to do that? Uh, and, and, uh, and especially in a first work, because I, I would be kind of scared to broach some of those, those aspects of this novel. There are writers who um, claim that if you're not Native American, you have no right to write mm -hmm. from the American point of view. Louise Erdick, maybe. T.C. Boyle, however, writes uh, his book, World's End, has mm. a Native American who's a main character. If you're a writer, you should be able to write from a woman's point of view. And T.C. Yeah. Bowles written a number of books from women's uh, perspectives. You're an artist. Yeah. And an artist, you should be able to inhabit different thought patterns, different feelings, different bodies even. And so I had, I had people criticize 
mean, say, well, you'll, you know, you'll never get a following. Nobody will ever read this book because you're not half black and uh, half shaman and <laughs> half white. Yeah. Right. I grew up in Florida. The people I wanted, I ne needed, I felt an oppressed people, a people to whom the criminal justice system had been unfair. And that's, my characters just grew that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the metaphor of the Everglades and kind of the primeval uh, and the canoes as time transporters and places that go through time and space. I found it very, uh, very gripping and I'm not alone. Uh, and, and I do want to, you know, maybe close this section before we get to, as you know, I'm very uh, pressed for time. I, I always thought, James, that astronomers would spend our times on telescopes. But actually, we're much more often on telecons than telescopes, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so I do have a couple of questions that we'll get to that I ask all my listeners, all my guests who honor me by coming on the show. Uh, but before we get there, I, I really do want to you know, kind of close with one big picture question that kind of grew out of it uh, and, and a conversation I had with Lawrence Tribe, who's an attorney, constitutional law professor at Harvard, was Barack Obama's uh, law professor. And you know, as you know, I've been thinking a lot about artificial intelligence and how we can have applications and implications for physics. I'm in the process now of turning Galileo's written words into audio form with Carlo Rovelli and others, um, including Jim Gates and, and many other eminent physicists. Frank Wilczek has agreed to play a part in it. And uh, I, my next step after that is to take the words and the audio and put it into an AI uh, that I'm calling Galileo. And, and kind of converse with him. And I said, I started to think about this with regard to Lawrence Tribe and the constitution. And you as an attorney, I wanna ask, are there implications for artificial intelligence in the criminal justice system, which is featured very prominently in the speed of life? Could we get to an artificial you know, uh, Supreme Court? Could we get into a situation where we have advanced capabilities from a general artificial intelligence that allow us to make perfect perfect decisions in terms of criminal justice in terms of decisions of uh consciousness is something right or wrong uh i hope not even given the current constitution of the philosophies on the court uh certainly uh, a lot of things can be done automatedly with artificial intelligence if you will jurors can be screened and ruled out on on per, per on, on a perfectly objective basis. Uh, so it could be streamlined. A lot of the court system is going electronic now. I hope not. not and maybe that's just my fear. Maybe I'm wrong yeah. about that. <laughs> so uh, so I'm going to take some questions from the audience. I do see Eric is in the audience. Eric Savage, who's the illustrator. I I do love the shoe illustration. That was one of my favorite ones. Eric is, is commenting on here. Other people are talking about uh, the ability to make split second judgments may not be good in criminal justice. In other words, the jury process, which again, features prominently here, um, you know, is a deliberative one and it can take, you know, weeks or months even to reach consensus. So if we had an, you know, instantaneous general artificial intelligence, maybe we'd lose some of that in the criminal justice system. James, I always ask my guests the following questions, uh, some of which will touch upon some of the characters we've already mentioned. The next question I have is relates to what I call the monolith. And you might know from Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey, that these aliens uh, uh, leave these monoliths throughout the solar system for human beings to find. And one of the things they, they find are these monoliths in the plains of Africa, and they don't know what to do with it. 
So they start freaking out and hitting with a bone and, and whatnot. But I want to ask you, if, if, if you had access to a million or billion year lasting time capsule, like these monoliths might be, what piece of knowledge would you put in it? And to inspire you, I'll quote from Richard Feynman. Feynman said, if in some cataclysm, all of scientific knowledge were to be destroyed and only one sentence passed on to the next generation of creatures, what statement would convey the most information about what we know? And he said, it's everything is made of atoms. What would you put in that, that really um, demonstrates what we've learned as human beings or you know, uh, comprises the knowledge that humanity has accrued during our 4 billion years of evolution? Don't judge others by differences, especially superficial differences between them and yourselves. Pigeon, skin color, and that would be hard for me. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that is a great piece of wisdom to convey. And the last piece of wisdom conveyed uh, uh, today will go back in time. Now I'm going to ask you advice to your former self before I have to break off in time and attend to another telecon, which you can tell how much I look forward to these telecons. But it's the price you pay to be a scientist these days. Anyway, Arthur C. Clarke, who is the namesake of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at UC San Diego, he said, the only way of discovering the limits of what's possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That's the name of the podcast. Uh, so I want to ask you, what aspect of life, now that you've lived it at the speed of life, what aspect of life perplexed you and mystified you as a 20-year-old that now makes sense to you because you had the courage and dignity to go into the impossible? Women. <laughs> You're not the first person who said that. Uh, this week, in fact, I, I had another person say that exact same thing. I was on his podcast and I asked him that. And he said, you know, he said I would go back in time and, and tell me to ask out more women. And I said, if I did that, I'd just get more rejections than I already had. But... Uh, <laughs> Yes. All right. Well, I have to thank you so much, James. This is uh, this has been a treat. I'm sorry it took so long. I'm sorry we had such technical difficulties, but um, but it's really a treat. And and I and I do appreciate the uh, the hand inscription. I bought the book on Amazon just so I could leave a verified review uh, of this wonderful book, uh, which means so much to me that you came on the show. We didn't get to talk about everything. I'm excited to hear about a future upcoming book. Do you want to say anything about that? Oh, I'm very honored to have been on your show. I'm looking forward to your next book because losing the Nobel Prize was really, uh, it just grabbed me. And, and I love the way you were part of it. You're intertwined personally throughout it in the scientific mystery. Uh, so I hope you're going to be writing another book. I'm writing a book right now about twins, a brother and a sister who uh, are close but have a falling out over the disposition of their father's estate. I said, as you can tell, I'm staying away from the law. Yeah, that's right. Well, it might not be such a bad idea. You know, Edwin Hubble said his father wanted him to be a lawyer, and he actually went to Oxford, and he uh, he studied laws or whatever they call it over there, and then he quit, and he came back, and uh, and he told his father, I'd rather be a second-rate astronomer than a first-rate lawyer, and so maybe you're doing the same thing. Maybe you're being a first-rate writer and a first-rate lawyer, or maybe some other combination thereof. But James uh, Victor Jordan, jamesjordan.com, please, everybody, go out, get this book. Uh, it's a phenomenal work of literature and art. Thanks to Eric. Hi, Eric. Hope you're still watching. Uh, really appreciate uh, your contributions to both the book, obviously, and the podcast. Are you going to work with Eric on the sort of semi-sequel uh, follow-up to Speed of Life? 
I will work with Eric uh, as long as he'll have me. I probably <laughs> to work with. Uh, I actually have a scene from the new book that I've for almost for, for over a year I've been meaning to send to Eric and ask him what he thinks about an illustration for it. But oh, wow. um, yeah, I mean Eric is multi-talented. Uh, it's not only in drawing illustrations, but it's he's my he designed and maintains my web. Uh, he can do videos, movies. He's just he's awesome. He and really you, can is. Find, you can find links to him on my website. I was just going to say that. Eric Savage is the man we're talking about, a legend in this world. James, thank you so much for going into the impossible. Have a wonderful weekend. And yes, I'm going to take you up on that. I'm going to need some advice for my novel, uh, you know, uh, losing the, the Pulitzer Prize. I, I think that's my next one. <laughs> All right. I will. Uh, that's funny. I, I'll send you some books. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, James. Have a wonderful day. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello, I'm Stuart Volko, producer of Into the Impossible. If you enjoyed this episode with Professor Brian Keating, please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, rating and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you and read every review and comment. And we're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating, and join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's Dr. Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at BrianKeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valco and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu.